Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears, formerly Commodity Watch Radio. In today's programme, I'm talking to Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bud, and to Bill Sharon. Let me introduce Michael Hampton first. Mike is a professional trader and author, a prolific internet poster, particularly on the website Global Edge Investors, and he's the semi-resident guest here on Frisbee's Bulls and Bears. Bill Sharon is president of SORMS. He has some 25 years experience in the financial services industry, working for organizations which include JP Morgan and Pricewaterhouse. He's been conducting seminars and consulting workshops in the area of risk management for the past 12 years. He writes the blog, What Needs to Go Right, and has a talk show on Blog Talk Radio of the same name. Um, Bill is in New, uh, in New York. He's from the northeast coast of, of the United States. Let's say, let's hear your voice first, Bill. Hello, Bill. Hello, how are you, Dan? I'm very well, thanks. And I'm obviously in London, as always. And Mike is uh, over on the other side of the world in Hong Kong. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? I'm very well. Okay, now it's uh, it's 11, it's 10 to 12, uh, almost, uh, uh, 10 to midnight here in London. What time is it there in, in New York, Bill? Uh, it's quarter to seven. Uh, quarter to seven. Okay, so it's quarter to twelve here. And what time is it in in uh, in? Um, and it, I should say it's Sunday for me and Bill. And but it's Monday yeah. for you, Mike. It's a sunny Monday morning here, about eight o'clock. Oh Lord! So uh, that that is uh, the the global uh, time structure in evidence in in real time for you there, ladies and gents. So anyway. Um, we're just going to have a kind of free-ranging conversation about the economy and, and um, related issues. And I suppose the big news of, of the past two weeks, really, has been this surprise victory of Scott Brown in, in Massachusetts, uh, traditionally a, a Democrat stronghold, and, and uh, Obama, an incredibly, or once an incredibly popular president, losing what maybe a month or two months ago would have been a, a, a seat which would have been a given. What are the kind of implications of that as far as you're concerned, Bill? Well, I mean, as a practical matter, it, it creates a situation in the Senate where the Democrats no longer have 60 votes. Now, they, they really didn't quite have 60 votes anyway because they had a couple of outlier senators that demanded all kinds of things to, to, to pass anything. But, but now they truly cannot override a veto, which, which basically means that legislation can be blocked in the Senate. I think on a more fundamental level, um, what it illustrates is the frustration of people, regardless of, of party, uh, with the deteriorating economic situation in the country. Um, you know, we, we supposedly have 10% unemployment, although the New York Times uh, on the front page has taken to calling it 17.5%. That was the, the, the numbers that came out before the latest 10%. Um, it's probably more up like 20%, and in some areas it's higher than that. And there doesn't seem to be any any sense that it's going to move in a different direction at this point. There's also a lot of anger about you know the, the bailout of the banks, um, and we've seen some egregious um, banking practices uh, in terms of raising interest rates on credit cards and canceling credit and so on and so forth. So. You know, Scott. Brown, who knows who this guy is? Really, he's a he's a state senator with not much of a, um, a history. He did vote for the Massachusetts health care plan, which is a similar concept to the one that is he's saying he's going to vote against. Uh, you know, in in uh, at the federal level. Um, I think there. So I think that's one thing. That's so going are you on. suggesting by that there's a, a certain amount of inconsistency on his part, or he's He's done what is ever politically ex expedient. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it, this is a strange guy. I'm, I'm not really 
that well versed, except you know it's sort of odd that he does a swim sh- swimsuit shoot for Cosmo ma- magazine and then becomes a state senator. It's, it's a little strange. I, mean, I would have done I, I it if I'd had to figure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't know if I'd gone into politics after that. Well, but, so uh, Italy's pr- proved that anything is possible <laughs> like that. <laughs> this is true. Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to say though is is who he is, uh, is is sort of an open question at this point, and I'm not. If my personal opinion is I'm not sure it's that important. Um, the fact of his election is pretty interesting. Uh, so I think that you know that anger uh, that, that is uh, evidenced by that election is one thing. But the counterbalance to that uh, is the Supreme Court decision, which basically wiped out all of the finance. Um, campaign finance reform bills in the last 20 years and basically allows uh, corporations to pour as much money as they want into elections. Now, it's it's a pretty well-known secret that um, corporations, whether they are banks or pharmaceutical companies or, or whatever, finance the majority of American elections. I mean, that's where the money comes from. Um, and there have been ways of packaging that and all that, all that sort of stuff. But now it's a free-for-all. So on the one hand, you have a populist that elects a guy like Scott Brown and says, we're electing this guy because we're angry. And on the other hand, you have a system now that is, is completely broken down in terms of any barrier on what we euphemistically call special interest groups. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, I thought a special interest group was a Sierra Club, but, you know, a special interest group is J.P. Morgan, essentially. So we have a, a very fluid situation over here. You saying about the, the, the influence of spending on elections reminds me, um, we have a satirical website here in the U.K. called The Daily Mash, and uh, they run these kind of COD news stories. And after Obama, the night after Obama got elected... They ran this news story, which, given the kind of euphoria about Obama, was was very kind of subversive and brave. But one of the lines from the news story was, Bill Mackay, a college student from Denver, said, I can't believe I now live in a country where an African-American can be elected to the presidency after spending just $600 million on advertising. And, uh, I mean, that, that kind of, when you've got $600 million to spend on advertising, anything's possible, really. Well, yeah, but Donna, you know, here's the interesting thing uh, about that election. Um, and, and it's true. It was a billion-dollar election, if you look at both sides. It's, it's nuts. It's, the amount of money that gets spent in these elections is insane. But what I think set up, you know, the Scott Brown experience, if you will, is that the country sort of had a catharsis. Now, you know, whether Obama is going to be a good guy or a bad guy or, you know, that he spent $600 million, we all focus on the money. But, but there also is that emotional context to his election. And I think, you know, it was very powerful, and now it's become dangerous because there, there's been a vacuum after that. You know, where does that hope go? Uh, it hasn't gone anywhere. Um, nothing's really changed. The banks have gotten bigger. There's no new regulations. You know, we can't pass health care. The government, uh, I won't, you know, I, I used the word dysfunctional earlier in our conversation. I'm not sure it's quite there yet, but we're close. Um, and I think the election of, of Brown really was the only, you know, that's the only way that voters have is the vote. You know, they don't, they, they can put money in you know, the Facebook account um, when Obama raised more money that way than anybody else, but they're still a minority. You know, they, they don't really drive the fundraising uh, for elections. And I think, you know, we have this juxtaposition really in this country between, you know, the populist outrage that got this guy elected because he's not, you know, he's not a, a political heavyweight by any stretch and at the same time, we have, you know, the Supreme Court basically saying, legitimizing the way all this $600 million is raised, which is through corporations who have the most influence and the most access. So can I jump in here? Sure. Um, it's Mike. Mike, um, I wonder if you're familiar with a guy called Gerald Salente. 
Sure. Um, and you probably know that Gerald makes uh, forecasts. He does something called trends research. And right. one of the trends that he sees for this year and getting stronger in the next two or three years is he sees the emergence of a third party. And um, I'm wondering if this new political uh, ability to raise lots of money, uh, even through corporations, is going to make it easier or harder for a third party to emerge. Because, as you said, and I think you left a very interesting thought hanging there, and maybe we can pick up on it again now, is you said, where has the hope gone? So mm -hmm. if, we, if we talk about you know, money and the sources of it, and people's need to attach their hope to something, um, I'm wondering if people kind of give up on Obama, if they'll then be looking uh, and willing to spend some of their money in helping the emergence of a third party. Well, you know, I've, I've heard him say that. Um, let me sort of talk about something else he's predicted, which is a return to civility and quality. It's interesting that, that that's not often quoted in terms of, you know, his predictions. It's, you know, rioting in the street and foods riots and the third party and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I don't think there's going to be much traction for a third party unless it is a, you know, it presents a completely different context, different paradigm, if you will. Um, you know, if you turn on daytime television in this country, and I, you know, I don't know what it's like in the UK and Hong Kong, uh, or even primetime television. I mean, it is the most astonishing amount of drivel that you can imagine. And you look at it and you think, my God, you know, the civilization is crumbling. Except then you look at who's watching television. Fewer and fewer and fewer people. So there is, you know, there is the opportunity for, whether you want to call it a third party or, or someone to fill a leadership vacuum, but it's going to be pretty difficult to do in the context of, you know, collecting a bunch of money and, and getting a bunch of campaign buttons and, and doing the usual thing. I, you know, I, well, maybe you're, maybe that's it. It's not going to be the usual thing. It's going to be something different. Well, um, that could I, be, that could be, Oh, you know, in, in fact, maybe we're sort of part of it now because what's happening is, uh, there's a lot of, I mean, if the intelligence is kind of drained away from mainstream media, um, it seems to be about putting out paid-for messages that, you know, right. uh, media makes its money from advertising, a lot of it, and uh, the message is, you know, to some extent skewed by who pays the, for the advertising. Sure. And, uh, you know, if you watch, if you watch, you know, CNBC, or I don't think Bloomberg quite fits this, but virtually any television network from America it's cheerleading the stock market and it's cheerleading for Wall Street. Right. Um, you know, with the main, the, the, the kind of alternative blogosphere, if you will, you know, has a much more thoughtful and alternative message it's putting out. And, you know, I think people are now looking to this kind of blogosphere world uh, to help shape their opinions and to help form them and to help have a conversation. And there's a very powerful dialogue going on all the time and, and on the blogosphere, potis, potosphere or whatever you might want to call it. Um, and maybe that's going to be where this new movement's going to come from. I, mean, I look be. at I people mean, like... Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I was thinking about Chris Martinson and how he's managing to articulate uh, a different vision of the future, one of self-reliance and really hearkening back to a lot of the traditional values of America and people who see that we need to do that or believe we need to do that are really turning away from politics and they're turning more towards their local communities and, and doing things at that level. And, and maybe that's where this movement's going to come from, from the local well, area, I, yeah. from the blogosphere. I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I, I've, I've actually interviewed Chris Martinson. I, I know him. Um, I think his analysis is brilliant. I don't like his politics too much. But that's 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 an aside, I guess. Let me give you an analogy, which um, maybe a little out there, but but kind of is this is how I think about this. If you're sitting in front of an oak table, you know, high school physics tells you that that oak table is 99.99999% empty space. 
And your head, your skull, your brain, your skin, also 99.9999% empty space. But if you bang your head on the table, you will experience the density that we all perceive. Yet we know that it's mostly empty space. So in a way, you know, the, the, the current mainstream view of what's going on uh, feels to me like, you know, the oak table head. And what's going on in the blogosphere and what's going on in local communities uh, feel to me like people understanding that it's mostly empty space. So that's the analogy. So, for, for example, Western Massachusetts has had a, its own currency called Berkshires for, I think, five years. They've got about $4 million in circulation. Uh, Ithaca, New York, has their own currency. North Dakota has its own bank. Um, now, when you look at these things, you go, well, $4 million, you know, it's peanuts. But it is a concept. It is a, a community that is operating and has been doing for some time now um, with a different concept of what money is. Is, is that legal? What it can be used for. Yeah, um, it is. yeah, sure. Uh, because we, we there's a couple of towns in the UK that have uh, their own currency. Lewis, uh, there's actually a Brixton pound now in South London. And I think they they printed a certain amount, and you have to return them within six months and redeem it with a new one. And they just rely on people not returning the money. And and Tom, that I sounds think, like charity. Yeah. Is that is that no? I just think it's one of the kind of ironies. It's a bit like a lot of banks make money by people never ever closing their accounts, leaving them open, and never never ever redeeming the money, and the money just gets lost. In the ether. Well, you know, let's talk about money for a minute, because you guys are much more immersed in that world than I am. Uh, but, you know, again, I go back to what I was brought up with. What's money? Money is a mean, means of exchange, right? I mean, we don't want to haul around chickens and goats and all that stuff, so we, we have a means of exchange, money. It seems to me that 20, 30 years ago, we changed that. Um, and one of the ways we changed it is that the source of that money, banks, which are private institutions, and, and again, you know, this is not a newsflash, the Federal Reserve is a private institution. Uh, it, it drives me nuts when, when people talk about the AIG bailout as being taxpayer money. I, I don't know how taxpayer money gets in the Federal Reserve. But So what happened, though, is that instead of being the intermediary in, in, in facilitating getting that means of exchange around to the people who needed it and could invest it, banks became profit centers. And so what they did, so they started making money, literally making money. And that you can trace that in terms of regulation, where there was a shift really from government regulators coming in and looking at banks to this self-assessment thing that came out of Fiducia, which is the law that, that came after the savings and loan disaster, which basically said you must disclose your material weaknesses because there's too many of you and you're smarter than we are, and so you got to tell us. Well, what that did really was it, it weakened the regulators and it allowed this growth of the concept that banks aren't intermediaries, banks make money. And so now you have companies. What do we look at when we look at a company? Well, how much money do they make? You know, what are their profits? We don't pay a lot of attention to their products. I mean, General Motors is probably the best example of that. You know, we paid attention to their, their stock price. Um, and in some cases, you know, making money for companies has become their product as well, buy our stock because we make money. So this shift, I think, is fairly recent. You know, it's for the last 30 years or so. I'm not suggesting that everybody before that was, you know, all sweetness and light, but, but this concept that we can create through these structured products more and more and more money uh, is a fairly new idea. And, and let me just lay out for you guys a, a number that I look at and I sort of don't know what to do with. October of 08, um, the GDP of all the c countries in the world was $65 trillion. At the same time, the derivatives, face value of derivatives in the world, was $791 trillion. So I look at those numbers and I say, well, what's that money for? What does that actually do, you know, other than be there? And I, and I don't really have an answer for that, and I don't think a lot of people who look at it who are not financially trained, I think they look at it and they go, I don't know what but it's there like, for either. So what it, is was, it? it was more than 10 times total GDP, the, the, the amount of derivatives outstanding. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's a phenomenal figure. Right. 
Yeah, but let, let me make a comment on that because I've written about this. Um, <laughs> you're comparing apples and oranges okay. um, because, you know, the, the value of derivatives is um, really a function of the way you measure them. And um, if you measure transactions on the over-the-counter market and you compare that with how you measure transactions on the futures market, you really have two different things going on there. In the over-the-counter market, if uh, bank A sells to bank B, sells to bank C, you get a chain of transactions which are very hard to extinguish. Um, and so as, it, 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 you know, what happens is when you buy and sell futures, if you buy it and then sell it, the future gets extinguished because it, it gets cleared through a common clearing party. Whereas if you, in the over-the-counter market, if A sells to B, sells to D, all of those derivatives stay alive until they mature. So you're really kind of counting the footprints, uh, the footsteps, instead of counting the feet. And um, this is a big misunderstanding that I never hear anybody talk about. But you're really comparing apples and oranges here. And these figures that are thrown around about the exposure of derivatives are, are, uh, are, are just, a lot of them are just nonsense. And, and, you know, they're used for scaremongering and not. But at the same time, I do agree with part of what you were saying, Bill. Um, it seems to me that the number of financial transactions that are going on in the world um, is reflecting what's happened to the banking sector. It's become a gambling arena. And banks really have become more like casinos than their traditional role as intermediaries that you were talking about. And to me, that's a very negative thing because I've written about this and others have too, is that when, um, when the banking and the financial sector becomes more than 20% of your economy, I don't know what the figure is, but let's say it's 20%, and it moves up towards 30%, which is what it was in the U.S. I think it was 30% of profits were uh, financial sector profits. You really come to a point where banks become um, they, they become scavengers. Um, they're, they're helping to, and, and they become parasitic. They're parasites on the overall economy. And I think we need to shrink back the banking sector to real doing real things and not not being an arena for gambling. And so, if if you're using those big trillions of dollars of derivatives as a measure of the gambling in our economy. I, I totally agree. That's something we need to change. But I, I think there's there's also another, and, and I, I certainly defer to you in terms of, of uh, you know, what those numbers mean. Um, but, you know, when I was, I guess it was actually before 08, when I was doing sort of some research into, you know, what I could understand about derivatives. Um, and we all know about the CDS, the credit default swap. Um, and, you know, again, there is a scenario where you have 12 times the face value of credit default swaps as you do underlying bonds. And, and again, people are buying credit default swaps without owning the underlying bond. Um, so, uh, you know, you look at those numbers and they, they can make you a little anxious. But then I talked to a friend of mine who uh, actually used to work down at Lehman, and uh, he said, well, credit default swap is the gold standard for evaluating a company. So I thought, well, how does that work? I mean, a credit default swap is, an in essence, an insurance policy that if the company defaults on the bond, you're going to get paid. So why would you buy one if you didn't own the underlying bond? Well, the reason would be is that the more likely the company is to default, the more valuable your credit default swap is. Now, you know, again, as when you step back and you look at that scenario, you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, that, that's got to have a very corrosive effect on the behavior of people. If, if the, you know, what we're doing in essence is we're betting on failure. And it ties in with, you know, an area that I, I do know something about, which is the management of risk. We've become very defensive. We've decided that risk is something we don't want. We want to lay it off on a third party. We want to mitigate it. We want to manage it. We want to, you know, it, it's not good. Risk is bad. And the fact of the matter is risk is not bad. Risk simply exists. You know, you get up in the morning and you face the day and you, what most people do is they organize themselves to be successful in that day, whether it's getting in their car and, you know, driving away to work that isn't going to hit traffic, you know, when you get in your car, you don't really review your insurance policy and you don't review the rules and regulations of driving on the road. 
And so what we've done, certainly in this country, and I think in most of the Western world, is we have taken a very defensive view. And and that, I think, has handcuffed us a lot in, ter- in terms of thinking our way out of this financial mess. Because we don't want the deleveraging. That's bad. You know, we, we want to make sure nothing bad occurs. Um, and we all know bad stuff is going to occur, a lot more bad stuff now than if we'd gone through it a year ago. Uh, and, but I, I just see it all the time where – Is this where, maybe because, you know, I'm thinking about balance sheets now, and I'm thinking about when you have debt, you expect 100 cents back on the dollar. And if you get less than that, then you've got something negative. You've got a risk. You've got a loss. Um, but if if you get your money back, you're only going to get back your money and your interest. You're not going to get any more than that. And in America now, we've got so much debt that people aren't really looking and seeing the equity anymore. They're seeing the downside. They owe money or someone owes right. them money. And they're worried about getting it back or not. They're not so much thinking about the upside because someone else has got the upside. They don't have equity anymore. They only have debt. Um, and I'm wondering if we've just used debt so much that we've changed our focus away from the upside towards the downside, the sort of thing that bankers worry about, that's supposed to worry about. Um, I, I don't know if that's meaningful in, in the context of what you were discussing, but you know, I, I, do, I am aware that there's very little equity now left in, in America. So much yeah. has drained away. Yeah, and it's, I think it's, you know, I think this all comes back to that we have a debt-based monetary system, which we've had for a thousand or more years. I mean, that, it's nothing new. Um, in, in olden times, you know, the king would forgive the debts because it was all his money anyway, um, and they'd start all over again. What we've done, you know, in, in, in the more modern era is every time, you know, the growth is linear and interest compounds, so we inflate an asset. You know, 300 years ago, it was tulip bulbs. Ten years ago, it was websites. Things that that don't have any inherent value, or in the case of real estate, we inflate the value way, way beyond, you know, any sense of reality. And it's an effort, it's a systemic effort, I think, to deal with the compounding of the interest. Now, you know, I, I really don't have, I'm not interested in, you know, moral judgments about whether that's good or bad. I'm interested in cause and effect. You know, you do this, something happens. You like that, you do it again. If you don't, you try and think of something else. I have a sense that we have, you know, we may have a couple more cycles in us, but we're kind of getting to the end of this because we've expanded it to the global level of a system where the only way you can create a means of exchange is by creating a debt. I don't know what the alternative to that is, you know, uh, except I have some hints, you know, and we were, we sort of touched on this earlier. One is if you look at the energy situation, energy is based on scarcity now, right? I mean, we, we only have so much oil, so much gas, so much coal, so on and so forth. And we can, everybody can debate about whether we've hit peak oil, we won't for the next 10 years or whatever. It doesn't matter. Peak oil will happen. Peak coal will happen. And, you know, we're going to put another 3 billion people on the planet in the next 40 years. So the competition for that is going to be overwhelming. That's one way of looking at energy. Another way of looking at energy is saying, well, you know, it's actually ubiquitous. Whether whether you want to see it as, you know, solar or wind or tidal or, you know, what what some people are calling, you know, free energy, which is based on the idea that everything vibrates, which is a little far out there, but it's, you know, the physics is there. I don't know how you quite capture it. But when you when you transition to that source of energy, all of a sudden, it's ubiquitous. Now, we have to build the, the system to capture it and transport it, but that's not, you know, 100 years away. So, you know, I, I know I'm sort of throwing a, a bunch of different ideas out there, but I have a sense that we are looking at a monetary system that I, I don't know how you kind of get it up off its knees anymore because I don't know what the, the economic engine is other than a transfer into a different energy source is going to be. Well, we're in a brave new world now because um, we've got globally we've got such massive amount of debt that um, you know it's pretty clear that a lot of it's not going to be repaid. Right. Uh, it's going to have to be written down or written off. And what's not happening um, now, and what should be happening, I think, is we should be 
thinking and planning, you know, how we're writing this debt down. We should be managing this process. Talk about risk management. We should be managing the risk. We should be managing the way the system unfolds. I mean, uh, Mike, I, I, I agree. But how, I mean, you know, some people have a certain amount of debt and, you know, they're cutting their, you know, Johnny, J Joe Bloggs on the street might be, you know, cutting his spending and paying off more of his debt each month or maybe getting rid of assets in order to pay down his debt. But in some individuals' cases and also in some countries' cases, they just have such a colossal amount of debt. There's no, there's no point, you know, trying to pay a little bit down each month because it's just it's, it, the debt is so big it's unpayable. How do, I mean, how do you deal with right. that? I mean, one way, obviously, is to collapse the currency, um, but but that's that, that's a false economy. There's an old saying that the you know the bad money pushes out the good, where if you've got a lot of people who are you know up to their ears in debt and have really reached the point where they they, they know they can't pay it off and they although they may pretend they can, and um, they uh, they start behaving in in you know reckless fashion and then everybody has to behave in a reckless fashion, and that's kind of where we are now because. People um, realize that something's going to happen with the debt, something's going to happen with the money, and they either become reckless or they become sort of super prudent. There's no in-between um, because the people in-between are going to soon get stuck in the reckless side uh, if they don't, you know, just kind of gr grab hold of their future and uh, and become What do you mean prudent. by reckless? What, 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 what's the reckless behavior that you well, I think that? we all know. I mean, what, what what we see in the UK is people now, I mean, some of them are buying homes because, you know, paying way too much money for them, borrowing way too much, because they, they, they think hyperinflation is coming, and they think that uh. by owning a home and mm. owing lots of money on it, they're somehow going to benefit from hyperinflation. I mean, I think they're totally wrong, but people are actually taking those kind of decisions now. Um, and, you know, we're actually in the U U.S., I think, since I'm an American, I think the, the U.S. is 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 um, is giving money and, and bailouts to to people who really don't deserve it. I mean, the auto companies might be a prime example. Right. Um, I don't think that's doing anybody any good. It's keeping a few people in jobs, but you know, are those jobs really doing anything worthwhile for the country? I wonder. Well, you know, it, it does feel like sort of a workfare program because we're we're producing automobiles that nobody really wants to buy. Um, I mean, people buy some Fords, I guess, but um, GM is is just not producing anything anybody wants to drive. I, I mean, my sense, and 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 I, again, I I'm not sure. I don't, whether can this I, is do you mind if I just uh, just take you up yeah. on that? Sure. Uh, the yeah. A lot of people are kind of rude about General Motors, but I, I'm, I'm saying this just because last week I went to um, the, my local Chevrolet dealership, not because I'm looking to buy a car, but I just ended up down there. And I, I looked at all the Chevrolets, and, and in the same dealership they had Saab and Vauxhall, all of whom are brands owned by General Motors. And I have to say, I, I, was, mm. I was really impressed. I've always thought Saab make nice cars, um, particularly their their convertible and, and general motors uh, the, the chevrolet they had three different cars they had this the chevrolet captiva um which is a kind of four by four they had the chevrolet cruise which is a kind of a bit like the bmw 3 series in the kind of junior executive um, category and this new car the chevrolet spark which is a tiny little kind of uh two-door runaround city runaround and i thought at the level they were offered they were all very good cars. They all they offered value for money. They had a reasonable amount of style. They um, seemed to have a lot of gadgets and gizmos. And I, I have to say, I was impressed. And I, I couldn't believe this is the same General Motors that everyone um, is so rude about. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not an expert on, on what they're producing now. The, the problem they have is that they produce such a poor product for such a long period of time, they've got a huge hill to climb. Now, God bless them if they've managed to figure that out and, and produce a better car. And, and again, I heard some interviews at the, um, uh, I guess, I don't know if it was the car show in Detroit or L.A., but you know, you had executives coming on and talking about how they've made changes in the company and so forth. But, you know, I, I think 
Michael's point is, well, okay, but should we really have made them a government entity? You know, I mean, absolutely not. (laughs) You know, it might just be that they have good designers. The the, the financial structure of the company might be awful, but they have good designers. You You know, it might be something as simple as that. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, you know, for me, for me, the problem is much bigger than that. Is that you know, should we be building cars at all? I mean, should should we be? Um, you know, we're addicted to a suburban lifestyle in America, and that addiction is also an addiction to oil, which uh, is becoming increasingly unaffordable. I mean, shouldn't we be looking at changing that? Um, you know, we effectively, it's like we're building better and better hypodermic needles to keep our heroin <laughs> habit alive. I mean, what? What's the point? Um, you know, and yet this this conversation that I'm trying to have is one that is not ever being had in the political leadership of America. You never hear anybody talking about it, but it's vital. And, you know, this... Yeah, yeah. this sorry. I mean, I just, I just think, you know, we were talking before the show about, you know, the kind of lack of leadership in America. And, I mean, I think a little bit what's happening is people become so good at marketing ideas um like obama marketing his his own candidacy um they've kind of forgotten the importance of the ideas themselves um right. but you know it matters what what direction the country's being led you know it matters you know the, the big questions matter um and those big questions aren't being addressed properly and you know i kind of feel like the country's got to fall apart and then we've got to start over i think um, that's what's going to happen actually well, I, I, you know I really do. This, this, that may be so, but as an Englishman, I am I am very impressed with America because, you know, so, there seem to be so many more Americans talking about these problems, and effectively, England and the America have all the same problems, all debt related, and I see Americans, um, you know, at all levels of society, confronting them and talking about them and addressing them in a way that they just aren't in England. And so I, I, I kind of feel a bit more optimistic about America than I do about England, I must say. Well, we're ahead, well, though, Dom, because, I mean, you know, it, it, I don't want to distract. He'll go ahead, but I just, no, no, just to finish, make a final point on what you said. I mean, the U.K. is, you know, like, as we've talked about before, is about 12 to 18 months behind the U.S., and, it's, and now maybe it's falling further behind because the U.K. managed to prop up its property market but, you know, it's headed in the same direction. It's headed down the same path. But America is just further down that path now. It's facing the implosion of its banking sector, and it's facing its, uh, you know, 30 40% drop in its property market before the U.K. is ha- having to do that. But, and, I mean, where's where's the English Peter Schiff? Where's the English Mike Shedlock? Where's the English Chris Martinson? They, they just don't exist. Well, I mean, they probably speak with a different accent. I think there's, there are people out there, and uh, but maybe they're not actually being forced to confront the same issues yet. And you know, maybe in a way you're lucky because you may you may have the, the chance to to see how America solves if it does manage to solve the problems, how it solves the problems first. On the other hand, maybe in a way by 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 propping the system up and keeping the uh, property system going so long, the, the U.K. may find its own pathway to uh, disaster and then suddenly find itself ahead of the U.S. in facing these issues. And I, that's a little bit my fear right now, um, that the U.K. will fall off the side of the table um, while the UK, U.K. stays, while the U.S. Mm. stays on the table. Um, and, and then suddenly you find yourselves confronting the issues of Iceland um, while the U.S. is still confronting, you know, its debt issues. So it's going to be really interesting because I think this stuff is fairly imminent. I think we're going to see one or the other country fall off the table in the next year or two or three. Have have either of you two gents studied? I mean, I keep reading about sovereign debt default. You know, it's it's no longer subprime. It's sovereign debt default. That's the threat to the global economy. But what, what actually happens in the event of some kind of sovereign debt default, to the country that defaults, like I mean, say England, we get downgraded, and we, you know, our, our UK gilts get downgraded by Moody's. What what happens to us, and and we default in some kind of way? What 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 happens to the UK? I'll give you my my answer quickly, which and we can talk about it. If Bill has a different answer, we can talk about Bill's answer. But I, my answer is Iceland. That's what can happen. I don't know if Bill has a different answer than that. <laughs> 
I, you know, I, I, I don't. And, and, and to be honest, I'm not even sure what's going on in Iceland right now. I mean, you know, people still get up in the morning and they have breakfast and go to work. They don't. They, they, they don't me, go to work and they don't have breakfast. An idea. Really? Well, okay. <laughs> they got to eat something. But uh, <laughs> I mean, is there, there's not there's not a famine in Iceland, is there? Yeah. They eat a lot of potatoes and they eat a lot of. Uh, I mean, you know, there are people and there's an interesting blog out there. Some a woman I can't remember the name of the blog offhand, but she's reporting on her day to day life and it's pretty grim. I mean, what she has to eat and. The kind of issues she has to struggle with are, are the sort of issues that, you know, we would have thought of in a distressed third world country. And, you know, Iceland wasn't thought of in that way, but it's becoming that again. Well, I think a lot of those issues, you know, it would surprise you to know, um, you know, exist in New York City. Uh, and I'm not just talking about, you know, areas that we used to describe as the ghetto um, you know, you have apartment buildings where people are banding together to share food, um, middle-class apartment buildings, because people have lost jobs. And a lot of this, I think, is sort of under the radar still. I mean, you, you know, you won't read, a, you won't see a story on the local news because they can't, they can't wedge it in between, you know, the murders and the rapes and whatever that that everybody's supposed to be terrified of. But but you're seeing very significant <clears throat> lifestyle changes. Um, by people who, you know, I count myself among them, uh, you know, middle class, upper middle class folks who, you know, who operate at a certain level in the society and have realized that uh, that's not quite available anymore or that's not even smart to do anymore, uh, which kind of gets back to, you know, what you were talking about earlier, Michael, which is, you know, there is a – and again, I you know, I, I point to Solante's predictions that people don't really focus on. There, There is a – a move on the part of this hope, you know, that, that got sort of welled up by Obama's election. There's a disappointment with the political process, but there is a shift, I think, going on um, in people's lives. And, you know, at the end of the day, what always strikes me is, you know, when I watch CNBC or any of these shows, it always seems like people are talking about economics as though it's some some sort of abstract, separate thing from the rest of your life. But, you know, on, on some basis, economics is really about another another description of how we relate to each other. You know, anthropology, sociology, psychology, religion, they're all ways that we describe our relationship to each other. And I think what's happened, you know, w w what a lot of Americans are sort of waking up to is that that there seems to be this disconnect between these discussions about the economy and their experience. And that may be a driver, you know, we were talking about a third party before, and that may be a driver in that direction. How do you reconnect those things? You know, how does how does going to work actually have a positive impact? You know, well, I, I, you know, we did a show in Detroit, which Bill, you wouldn't know about, but we, I, I was in Detroit. Uh, I'm from Detroit. I was born there, and we did a show uh, about an artist called Mitch Cope, um, who bought a house for a hundred dollars. And, um, he has a, he has a concept of, uh, you know, bringing other artists and like-minded people to his community and really building a community, um, from scratch at the kind of a post-crash level. And, you know, I think maybe th there's a lot of that going on right now where, and yeah. Chris Martinson has that concept too, is, he does, is yeah. the idea is, yeah, look beyond the crash, you know, think of all the worst things that can happen and imagine a life and build a life that works in a post-crash environment. And, you know, maybe that's kind of where this is going to come from. People will be forced there or, or get there mentally to a point where they, they can see what the world looks like after the worst things happen and start building something new. Yeah, and that, that is right, right though, is, is that, you know, it might not happen. And then, you know, you end up missing opportunities because you're so busy preparing for the worst. Well, well yeah. yeah, but I mean, maybe you need to build a sort of life that makes sense, you know, maybe in both, have a foot in both calves right. or have a life that makes sense in both worlds. And, you know, I, you know, I, I think probably buying gold is maybe one way of, you know, invest, you know, having, having a money that's going to preserve through the transition and still have some value in the next world. But I mean, we, we come on to a place where, um, you know, I think, 
investing in gold isn't enough. And I've been starting blogs about this recently on GEI. And I've been saying to people, well, you know, ultimately, you know, a inv- better investment than gold or maybe alongside gold is to invest in your community. Um, and, and there's a wonderful line uh, uh, from a film I, I recently saw called The Kingdom of God. I don't know if you, you either you're familiar with that film, but it's about a middle age uh, time when when you know uh, people from the UK, England were fighting in the Crusades. But uh, I just the one line from there, which was very memorable for me: the King of Jerusalem, who was an Englishman, was very sick and he had uh, I don't know leprosy or something, and he was dying. And he'd kind of held everything together. And he says to this new uh, leader who's coming along, he says, "Look after the people, and there's a chance they may look after you." And for me, that kind of said everything about, you know, the idea of community. Yeah, Dom, you know, it's interesting what you said, which is, you know, if you do this, then you might miss out on some of the things. I mean, there are degrees, obviously. You know, there there are folks who think there's going to be a pole shift and they've got, you know, buckets of stuff at their front door and they can run outside. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to go there. There's a pole shift to heck with it. But um I think what's happening is that there is, you know, people are looking, we're a consumer society. We had an economy that was 60% or more driven by consumerism. Now, it isn't that anymore, and I don't think it's going to be that for quite some time. There is something that's taking, I think what Michael and I are talking about is there, there is something that's taking that the place of that. Um, and it's it's still amorphous. It still has not found a real voice. I don't think. I'm I'm a little leery of this idea of another political party because of the ways that political parties get structured and financed and so forth. That, maybe that happens. But regardless of whether there's a, there's a, a political party that comes out of it or not, there is there is something that is happening in the country that doesn't have to do with. You know the election of Scott Brown and and the filibuster number in the Senate, um, and I think in a way that's very dangerous for the government, because the more that people organize on a local level, um, and I'm not I'm not saying dangerous from the standpoint of a threat. I'm just saying dangerous from the standpoint that people start paying less attention, because nothing seems to be happening, um, other than you know their own local community now. We can't, you know, all sort of go be hobbits somewhere and just deal with our local communities. We live in a, you know, we've got globalization. We live in a big world. But I think, you know, as Michael was saying, I think that's going to be the source of the ideas. Uh, at least that's what it looks like because, you know, again, if you go back and you look at the last year in the United States, there's been this tremendous amount of energy focused on what they call healthcare, which is really sick care. It's, it's, it's really health insurance reform, and we can't pass things like, um, you know, you can get insurance if you have a pre-existing condition. You can't be canceled if you get sick, which happens to a lot of people in this country. We, we can't pass legislation to do that. So people look at that and say, "Well, what's you know, what's the point? <laughs> That's not working." Um, and uh, at the same time, I should say, I, you know, I'm very hopeful about what's going to happen because, you know, you know, you were saying as an Englishman, you admire Americans. And I think, you know, we get up off the deck pretty good. You know, we, we, we tend to really screw up. But then we, you know, we do get ourselves together. And, and I'm not quite sure how long that's going to take, but I don't think it'll take that much longer. Hmm. Well, this is all very interesting stuff, gents, and we've kind of run out of time, but I've got got one last question. I mean, you mentioned a figure earlier on of 20, you know, something like 20% unemployment in the States, which is a terrifying number. If if one in five people who want to work aren't working, Mm -hmm. Um, and yet concurrent with that, we've seen, I think, this now... I think it became the the greatest uh, stock market rally in in post war history, or, or something ridiculous like that. So, if ever you needed an example of the divide between rich and poor, uh, bail that bankers enjoying the greatest stock market rally in in, in post war history, and then unemployed Joe. I mean, what what do you make of that 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 huge divergence? Well, I, I, let me add a a little bit of a different perspective on this because. Um 
you know, I, I don't follow these numbers, you know, religiously, but but the third quarter productivity numbers came out and there was an 8.1% increase in non-farm productivity and a 13.4% increase in manufacturing. That was in 90 days. So I look at those numbers and they always seem to go up. Um, and part of it is we're paying people less money to do the same work. And a lot of it is, I think, technology. But something else that is sort of out there that we don't want to recognize is that we're not producing people that are employable. 20 million adults in this country are illiterate, functionally illiterate. Um, 10, probably, is it 200, 200 million people in the States, is that right? Or is it well, roughly, uh, well, I'm talking about adults. It's 300 and some odd million, but adults, working adults, it's about 190 to 200 million. So 10% of working adults are illiterate? Yeah. And when you look and, and at... What, do you mean they can't read? They or, can't read right, yeah. And English you, or, or any language? Well, English. Yeah, I don't so, know. So, I mean, they might be fluent in Spanish, but they can't read and write English. They might, but again, we're talking about people graduating from school. We're not talking about, you know, I, I guess there are I mean, some people lumped in there. outrageous. Well, we're 37th in the world in education. We have been for a long time. We have let our public in, uh, education system deteriorate to an unbelievable level. So, what's happening is we are we are producing a population an increasing percentage of people in the population who are not employable. Um, and, you know... But hold on, hold on, Bill. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I understand what you're saying, but are they really unemployable or just... I mean, there there used to be jobs for people like that, and maybe those jobs don't exist anymore. Well, yeah, again... Chinese I, are doing them, aren't they? Well, we, we've taken a lot of them and we've outsourced them. Now, you can... You, I guess you can go work at McDonald's or, or Burger King, but there are only so many of those jobs... Um, you know, you look at the dropout rate in this country, particularly, oddly enough, in the Midwest, it's just through the roof. So, it, you know, when you talk about unemployment, yes, the, the economic crisis has thrown a lot of people out of work, and it's not just the folks who are uneducated. There are a lot of educated people who are out of work. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a networking group I belong to called the FANG, the Financial Executives Networking Group. It's got about 40,000 members, and they put out a monthly, you know, new member thing. And I would say of the new members, 85% are unemployed, you know, and these are CFOs and, and COOs and, you know, fairly senior guys who they, they don't have a job. So, you know, the, the thing I get concerned about a little bit when we, when, you know, when we position it as, well, the bankers are making all this money and the, you know, the working guy can't get a job. That's true. That is very true. But we have some other fundamental problems that we're not dealing with. Um, and it's, it's alarming, you know, that, that again, you know, there are companies I go into and, and there are, you know, they're very hardworking, nice young people who can't spell, you know, who uh, can't write a sentence. Uh, and it's, it's, it's alarming. So we have, we have sort of the problem underneath the problem. Um, which is that we borrowed all this money and we, you know, cut taxes because, you know, we hate taxes and we destroyed our educational system. And now we got it. We're producing people who, you know, are, are really we're going to have a tough time employing because, you know, when it took 10 guys to dig a ditch. Now all you got to do is get a guy and a machine and he can dig the ditch. And that's happening more and more. I mean, that in a way, that's a good thing because technology is going to make life easier and has made life easier. So it's a complex problem, you know. Um, but I mean, you know, it's, it occurs to me that maybe part of the solution is you got all these people in Fang who are unemployed. Presumably, they know how to read and write, yeah. and there are loads of other people around them that don't know how to read and write. Well, why don't the ones that know how to read and write teach the ones that don't know how to do it? And uh, I mean, it's it's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing, but not entirely because maybe we just need to organize our economy through local currency or local on a local basis in such a way that we can start addressing some of those problems at the grassroots level and not waiting for the government to come along and find a solution. I agree with you. I think that's actually, you know, as I was saying before, I think that's beginning to happen. I, I think, you know, that's where the solutions will come from because it's not going to happen. I can't imagine it happening at the governmental level. I just... No, they'll only start doing it if it becomes politically expedient. Right, yeah. 
Well, you know, but this third party thing is, I think, is about forcing the government to actually, you know, lead. <laughs> or maybe getting people into government who can lead, who aren't just cheerleaders. Um, that's what I think it's about. Um, it could be. You know, I mean, again, you know, you, you do see, you do see, um, uh, at the local level. I mean, one of the things, I'm not particularly involved in it, but, you know, the, the whole issue of gay marriage in this country is very interesting, you know, from the perspective that you're describing, which is localities, state localities, having opinions about it and moving one way or the other. And mm-hmm. that's sort of when you look at that, you say, well, okay, I don't really, I'm, it's really a drag that they said no in whatever state they said no in, but that's a local pr- political process. That's something where people are looking at an issue that doesn't have to do with money and saying, okay, this is what I think about it. So there, are, there is some evidence um, that, that that might happen. The thing that concerns me, and I know we're running out of time, but here's what really worries me about the the financial system and, and any kind of regulation or reform. I don't think people understand how it works. And I'm not talking about derivatives. I'm talking about how does money get created and how does it get put into the system? I don't think people have much of an idea. I look, my, my daughter goes to a private school here in New York City, and I looked at her curriculum. There's nothing in it about the Federal Reserve. There's nothing in it about, you know, chartered banks. Uh, and and I, I think until we educate, you know, our population about how money works, you know, which is what Martinson does brilliantly. I mean, his crash mm-hmm. course is probably the best analysis I've ever seen anywhere. Until people really understand that, we're, we're kind of hamstrung in terms of getting some kind of grassroots or galvanizing some solutions. I, I don't really have any solutions. I, I've figured out how it works. Well, I want to pick up on that and maybe use this as a way to kind of conclude some of the things we're doing, uh, we're talking about here. Um, and, and that is, can we agree that if there is going to be a third party, it's going to be about uh, several things. It's going to be about education. It's going to be about leadership. It's going to be about local uh, activities. Um, does it make sense that that's where it would come from? I guess so. You know, I mean, I I think that sounds right to me. What I what I truly believe is that what's going to happen is going to be something that we can't quite conceive of yet, because, you know, whatever it is, has got to be massive enough to really make a change. And and really making a change looks pretty difficult right now. So I I think you're right in terms of the components. I really do. it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds. It really is. It's a good time to be and alive. I, it is. Exciting times. <laughs> All right. Well, gents, thank you very much. And uh, we have run out of time now. So, Mike, uh, why don't you uh, mention your website uh, as we close? Yeah, the website. And I'll, I'll start a thread about this. People can come and have a word, have a read. GlobalEdgeInvestors.com Good stuff. And... Uh, and and Bill, why don't you do you have a, a website that you want to mention, or perhaps your blog, or uh, yeah, you can go to uh, www.sorms.com, and there's a link there to my blog, and um, you know there's a, a description of of the work I do. Excellent stuff. All right, well, gents, um, thank you very much, and it's been a pleasure to talking to you both, Bill Sharon and Michael Hampton. Uh, have a nice morning and evening. Thank you, Dominic. Thanks Thanks so much. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, Please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes.